Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 59th episode, I'm happy to have Kate Sweeney join us to talk about her fine artwork and her research, which includes a background in scientific illustration. So we talk at great length about the practice that she has in her fine artwork, which incorporates a variety of digital processes, painting, drawing, collage, and we talk about that all. So please stay tuned for that. Of course, if you've never heard of Studio Break before, we're a podcast and blog website that features a variety of contemporary artists discussing their work in great detail so you can check them all out on studiobreak.com if you've missed any of the episodes and this is the first time you're hearing it use the archive function to go episode by episode and check out all the great ones that you've missed I think we've got about 80 so far again you can subscribe to the Studio Break podcast in the iTunes store just search for Studio Break under podcasts and you'll find us there again if you happen to like us and you've been listening for a while we always appreciate when you leave some comments as it just generally gets a little bit more visibility in iTunes, which is kind of important. So we hope that you can leave us some comments if you like the podcast. Again, you can follow us a variety of ways, including our Facebook page, which provides a number of updates, past guest announcements, show announcements, opportunities, things like that. So please like our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, so please do. And of course, if there's any cool articles or artists that you think would be interesting to look at, please share them there. Lastly, I just recommend that you go to Kate Sweeney Fine Art before this interview or check out some of the other images as you're listening. It's always helpful to see what we're talking about. So please go ahead and do that. And here's our interview with Kate Sweeney. Stay tuned. Well, I'm uh, back with uh, Kate Sweeney. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing excellent, and it's a pleasure to have you on and to um, you know let, let me pick your brain about your work and your studio practice. So thanks again. Well, it's a it's a great pleasure to be here with you, David. Well, I, as as you know, and we talked a little bit about this because uh, we interviewed Liz uh, Tran not too long ago. Um, mm-hmm. We always start off with a little bit of a background to just kind of get an idea of where people are from and you know what their experience is like and um, how that's all shaped into their studio practice. So could you just talk a little bit about um, where you're from and um, you know some of your experiences growing up? Well, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, I grew up there and I went to school in Michigan. I went to uh, University of Michigan, both for my BFA and my MFA, which was in medical and scientific illustration. And, you know, in terms of, like, childhood experiences, I think the most important factor in my development as a child was the fact that my mother was a nurse and my father was an engineer, and they were both very, very interested in science. And that that was the start for me. But, you know, of course... The nice thing about having artistic talent early on is that people see you drawing when you're little and they can encourage you because they can see your talent. And so I was always encouraged in my talent and I thought that was very important too. I always feel sad, you know, if someone has a great math talent or something that's more obscure, you might people might not know it and they, they don't encourage you as much as if you have a visual skill. So um, I was very lucky to be encouraged and supported by my parents. And um, growing up in Detroit, I don't think that was all that significant, to tell you the truth, the area. I mean, it was, maybe it was good because I had to escape in my mind from Detroit. But um, the most significant thing was a love of science as well as art from a very early age. 
Well, it's and it's again such an interesting thing to hear how um, how those experiences are so different for everyone. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. well, how how did you wind up uh, kind of slowly coming to it? Was it something that you? Ex- I mean, when did you come to it? Especially if you had that that science background, did you explore it in high school, or was it something that came later? Well, you know, I was always, always, I was known as an artist, basically, ever since I could remember, since I was tiny. So I always knew I was an artist in a way, and I was always encouraged, and I was always doing art things, and I, I took outside of my regular public school, elementary school, my, I, once in a while I could take little drawing activities outside of that, and that was very encouraging. And then when I was in high school, I started working for two artists in their um, business, which was, one was a painter and one was a weaver. They both actually worked at Cranbrook Institute of the Arts, which is a very big deal art school back in Michigan. Um, They have a very fine program. And I think that probably influenced me too, just being near Cranbrook and I could go to Cranbrook and see the art school there. Anyway, they worked for Cranbrook and I worked for them one summer. painting for them on uh, needlepoint canvases that they sold in their shop, which was bizarre. But in the course of doing that, um, I met another young woman who worked there, and she told me that she was going to go into this field called medical illustration. And when I learned about that and heard about what it was, I thought, oh, my God, this is perfect for me because it combines both science and art. And up until that point, you know, my father was encouraging me to be an engineer and my mother was encouraging me to go into medicine. And I just, you know, both of those were sort of interesting, but it just wasn't the right thing. And when I heard about medical illustration, I thought, oh, my God, this is perfect, because if I go to just plain old art school, I was worried that I was just going to end up being a waitress and I'm not a very good waitress. So I thought I need some sort of a vocation. And my parents were very strong encouraging me to have a vocation and so luckily I found medical illustration and then from that moment on for all my schooling through undergrad the rest of high school and undergraduate I concentrated on getting the requirements ready to apply to the graduate program in medical illustration it's been great uh, I did take a lot of fine artwork but I also took a lot of pre-med work in in my undergraduate years so enjoying both of them very very much and as far as a career, it's been wonderful. I've also been able to do it strictly almost all freelance, which means that I can schedule myself and still find uh, time to create my own artwork, my own fine art, although that's been sort of an ebb and flow thing over the years, depending on what my my other commitments are. But um, all in all, I, w- I would say that it was an extremely fortuitous choice on my part that I heard about that and I went into medical illustration. Because I love science, but I didn't want to spend 20 years in front of a lab bench to make one discovery. I mean, I don't have that kind of stick I don't have that kind of attention span. So by doing medical il- and scientific illustration, I'm, I can be sort of voyeuristic about it. And I, I have to learn about my subject areas, but I do not have to invest my entire career in them. Right. It's it's so interesting because, you know, you you kind of described it right away, that idea of, um, you know, becoming a wait, waiter or waitress or something to, to kind of make ends meet. Um, most people kind of think about it as some sort of opposite, like you're kind of risking all these things. So it's very, very practical. Well, that's my family background is to be practical, you know. And, and when I was in art school and going through art school, there was 
it wasn't a great market for art. Let's put it that way. It's not even close to what the market is right now. So, I mean, it was pretty much seen to be a dead end if you went to fine art, if you got a fine arts degree. So um, hopefully that is definitely changing. But back in the day, it was pretty well, And rough. so what was, your, what was your experience then as an undergraduate? What did, you, what did you have to do in terms of the classes that you took? Well, I, I took a regular, I mean, I, ha, I got kind of a double major, so I took a red, regular studio art program and, um, and everything that that implies. And, you know, I tried to be pretty broad spectrum in that in terms of the 2D arts. I didn't go very deeply into 3D arts, but I stayed in drawing and painting, some photography, some design, um, kind of all around in that area. And uh, because the other side of my college career was spent taking pre-med classes, um, which is a pretty heavy course load. Was was it something that kind of um, balanced out the other? Because one seems like it would be so intensive mm-hmm. and, and book-heavy, and, and the other one might be more liberating and obviously, you know, kind of free. Well, you know, I thought art school was pretty damn rigorous, you know. I mean, I felt a lot of pressure to be good in art school, and and in a way it was it was almost more nerve-wracking because when you're studying science, I mean, there's an answer there to everything that you're trying to discover. I mean, you know, when you're when you're studying science rather than creating new science, you're learning about systems and you're learning about things that, that you know, when you take a test, there's an answer on that test. You know what the answer, you know, there's an answer there for you. When you're in art, there's absolutely no answer. There's, there's only subjective choices that you can make about is this good enough is this is this going where i want it to go and for me that was almost it was a, almost a kind of kind of seasickness in a way and i didn't really connect very much with any of my um art professors and so i didn't have a good mentor at that time to sort of help direct where and how I was thinking about my own fine art. It was mostly I was just getting those classes in and getting techniques down. And I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't feeling like I was formulating myself as an artist. You know, I was simply, I was simply taking on new information, but it wasn't coalescing into any kind of an identity as an artist. And I think that artists, like Liz is a good example. I think I think she came out of her art school education with a strong identity as to kind of what she was all about as an artist. And I don't think I really felt that at the end of my formal arts education. I think that came much later. Well, and so I'm curious, too, though, I mean, in terms of just the, the way that you use your hands or in terms of um, being you know, very technical, is that, is that something that appeals to the way that you just think about how you work through something as opposed to, I don't know, I guess kind of how you're talking about, like, I mean, again, I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I can't really think some, about something super, super technically if I were to sit down and draw it, it would be, you know, much looser. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is, is it a process for working with you mm-hmm. that you are kind of really, um, I don't know, thinking about how technically proficient you can be with the material if you're using it or. Well, see, this is a really good question, David, because I am not a very disciplined person, and the field of medical and scientific illustration is extremely disciplined because you must get it mm-hmm. right, and you are always working for a client, which I actually really love. I love having a client to work for, 
but it's it you have to i have often said that it was me you know pounding my square peg into that round hole you know i mean i didn't have very much discipline when i came to the medical illustration part of my education and my career i really had to force myself into that but i in the end i think it was a very good thing and i know what you're saying is that that when you're an artist you're you're always trying to free up your mind and free up your thinking and see where things go and i love that aspect of it but i also like sort of the rigorousness of thinking that's required with medical illustration and the and you know i mean i spent years as an airbrush artist using the airbrush as a medical illustrator if there's anything that's going to drive you batshit crazy it's the airbrush i mean you really have to be meticulous and precise and so procedure oriented and i am not a procedure oriented person i'm just sort of like you know i don't want a recipe i just want to make stuff but with something like the airbrush you really had to become disciplined about your 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 technique so those things were were hard on me but in the end i think they were good in terms of forming a strong work ethic and also learning that you just worked all the way through to the end and you didn't stop halfway i mean when i see art school art or i when i've taught students one of the biggest lessons i try to teach them is that's a really great piece but it's not all the way done you know i mean have you taken it as far as you can take it don't stop halfway and i think artists are a little afraid of that and so when i taught i often taught told my scientific illustration students you know we're going to do this project we're going to do this technique twice and the first time i want you to ruin it i want you to take it so far that it's ruined because i want you to know where that edge is i want you to know where something is ruined where it's gone too far so that you know when you back out of that you know when something's also done and sometimes i think fine artists young fine artists or new fine artists they don't know where that that done point is and so sometimes i see their art and it just feels incomplete or lazy or flaccid or you know it's not taken all the way to the end and i think part of the, the good side of the discipline i learned as a medical illustrator is is being able to take something all the way to the end i mean the bad side is too yeah it it can be constricting but i've i've tried to keep my fine art thinking as um irrational as i can yeah i was thinking that you know in response to that it, it makes a lot of sense because i think that you know you kind of get set up in a, a a certain framework and especially if you enjoy any kind of success at something it's really easy to want to always repeat it um without taking sometimes any risks you become a brand i think i think i see a lot of artists become a brand their own brand and they just do the same same thing over again and i think sometimes po- possibly too that's a consequence of being in a gallery system right is they need you to be marketable so they need you to be branded and they need you to continue to pump that out and you know there there's always good and bad with every system but um but having been largely outside of the gallery system i don't feel that i have to have any consistency in the things i explore and i don't have to keep doing myself over and over again that i can i can uh go off on a completely different tangent one of my great heroes in that regard has always been gerhard richter 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that guy is like, he's been everywhere in the entire art world. But I do think underlying all of that is is one central thesis that um, when I've had a couple of glasses of wine, I can usually try to make an approximate idea of what they think that thesis is. But <laughs> I, it's it's early in my day here, so I, I, <laughs> I don't know you. what Gerhard Richter's thesis is right now. <laughs> Well, and so so did you wind up going then straight uh, to get your MFA then in medical illustration? Um, I took a year off, but that was only really to work. And um, then I came back and went to, started my two and a half year degree in uh, medical illustration. Yeah. And where was that at again? Uh, University of Michigan. Okay. And so then, you know, you, I, I'm guessing that it was is very similar because you d- kind of described that you know, the, the art practice kind of came a little bit later than, than all of that, or was it something that was emerging when you were getting your MFA? Um, I was still continuing to do fine artwork, but in a, in a very limited way because it was, a, 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 I mean, when you're in the medical illustration program, you are taking the first two years of medical classes in addition to all of your uh you know, studio practice classes, which are very heavily technique-oriented in medical and biological illustration. So you don't have a lot of time to think. So, Gosh, uh, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I sort of came out at the end of that battered and scarred and, um, you know, immediately started working and looking for work. But I was able to work kind of part-time and freelance, and so I still had, you know, nooks and crannies of my self-left where I could get fine art done. And um, but I spent a I spent a significant portion of my energy in my after getting out of graduate school really using that graduate degree pretty exclusively to spend my time only doing medical and scientific illustration. But somewhere along the line, I just sort of like snapped out of it and said, I can't I can't do this. You know, I I have to have art too. So I sort of came back to the fine art aspect of my um, my original career goals. Well, and and so one of the things that I'm kind of struck by too is is that relationship of you know we talked about you know shapes, mm-hmm. um, but I was going to say especially abstraction you know there there mm-hmm. might be a relationship for maybe some to um, you know maybe cells or kind of cl- cross sections of mm-hmm. cellular type images, um, but where is that investigation in terms of um, you know extra- abstraction and formal elements? Where does that kind of come into the work in the way that you kind of explore it. Right. Well, there's a, a, a body of my work, a pretty significant body of my work, that feels fairly abstract, but in my mind it's, and it's, it's, it's the work that kind of really has a lot of circle elements in it because I'm also very, very in love with math in a, in a sort of amateur sort of way. And the circle is really the most pure form and it feels the most... For a geometric mathematical form, it feels to be the most natural, the most um, direct form. And so I've spent a lot of time exploring the circle and exploring it in such a way... I mean, I'm really interested in quantum physics and sort of the underlying structure, the really the base, base underlying structure of the universe and how that works. Because I did spend a lot of time when I was a kid reading my father's physics books, and it just was fascinating to me. So I have this sort of fascination with the idea of what is it really like way down there on that incredibly small scale mm-hmm. and I felt like when I got down to that level and I wanted to to play with that idea um, that the circle and that sort of 
that shape was really important to me somehow. And that um, also another thing that I discovered that I needed to utilize was not your typical sort of Western program of perspective, but more what I would call sort of a the Asian perspective, which is really just sort of um, atmospheric perspective rather than, you know, you have receding lines and grids and everything in, mm-hmm. in Western perspective. But that atmospheric perspective, because when you get down that small scale, almost becomes irrelevant. And so position is 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 kind of almost more a conjectured kind of a thing. And, and but working on a 2D surface, as I have been doing, I do want to imply some sort of, you know, spatial relationship between these forms. And I found that relying on atmospheric perspective was, was more effective for me. So when you see my pieces and they just look like, oh, yeah, they're kind of abstract and they got some stuff in them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just hope people react to them just in terms of their visual um, the visual appeal, but for me, there's a much deeper appeal. But I don't, I don't necessarily expect people to get that out of it. But my stronger pieces, the pieces I feel have been most successful, do play up that idea of um, in a, how far and how how much of a sense of depth and per- perspective you can create in an abstract piece. I like that. I like it when that happens. But I, I want to say that we were talking a little bit about the idea of scale or I thought I remember reading somewhere about the idea of scale in your work too because there is like a, a level of experiencing these things. You know, mm-hmm. and so that kind of reminds me of that in terms of the way that, especially some of the works that where you incorporate, um, you know, more of the wall pieces or, mm-hmm. you know, the ways that you kind of start to see these spaces or these shapes kind of stack up um, is something mm-hmm. that's very interesting. Although, mm-hmm. I might have just thrown us into it a whole different, <laughs> a whole different area. But <laughs> no, no, that's a good one. I, I've often felt that the scale of the piece that you work on is very important because. You know, I'm not really a sculptor, but I feel that my two-dimensional pieces, it's very important how big they actually are, how much physical space they take up. Because like any sculpture, it really, it's what it's relating to is your own physical body. And so the size of the piece has some relationship to the size of the viewer's body, no matter if it's 2D or 3D. And I do think that that's a very important component of people's work. And then the, the other thing I think is important about my work is, is I've never been very successful about thinking inside of a rectangle. Like I was a really lousy photographer because I just, you know, I hated that edge around everything. And so many, if not all of my pieces today are not made within a rectangle and they're not even displayed within a rectangle. They're not within a frame. And I think that that has always been extremely important for me. I've always worked with cut shapes. Um, you know, I've always worked with things that are not rectangular, even though I'm a two-dimensional artist. And, you know, I I try to tell people the gospel of, you know, we never started working on rectangles until there became this practice of selling little canvases to the bourgeoisie. You know, I mean, it used mm-hmm. to be we basically were still cave painting. They were doing giant frescoes on walls, and they were doing, you know, then it slowly evolved into this sort of easel painting society. And then, it, you know, easel painter, painters, you know, the Impressionists being the probably the foremost example of that, were creating these small portable works of art so you, your average person could own them. And But that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that painting is. And, it, it, and so I found it a little stifling to think about painting as something you did on a piece of canvas. And 
I felt good when I was liberated from that, and I could, I could become more, more na- more what I felt to be a natural response to what I wanted my edges to be like. Right, right. Well, and you know something that we've kind of talked about a little bit is this idea of, of math and systems and mm-hmm. almost kind of establishing rules. I think, again, it's mm-hmm. something that you talk a little bit about in your statement. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of rules do you set up? And is is I'm, I'm trying to, again, you know, if you think about, like, talking to someone that just does uh, figure paintings, they might do a lot of sketches mm-hmm. to, to prepare for something. So I also mm-hmm. want to kind of think about, like, you know, what what is it that you do to kind of prepare to to you know work in a in a particular mode or series or explore mm-hmm. a certain work what is it that facilitates that for you that's a good question um one of my earlier series because i do i do kind of have a math mind and so when i'm working with my abstract shapes i set up parameters for myself in terms of how i'm going to allow myself to arrange things within the composition and there's usually some sort of a mathematical quasi-mathematical or phony mathematical relationship in terms of how things have to line up and I and I love having that kind of a parameter in there because to me I do think that you know the structure underlying the universe is is highly patterned um, I don't want to say it's highly regular I don't want to say it's mathematical but I think that the natural growth of a system does follow um, a discernible pattern, and that's what makes it actually discoverable to us, is that we can discern these patterns. And this is what we're learning about the world, is we're learning its patterns. And so I try to always set up some sort of a a little starting point of, you know, I'm only going to allow myself to line them up this way. and But then within that, for me, it's always kind of a call and response kind of a thing, because I'll put one piece down, and then I'll have because I work frequently with collage, which is my favorite way to work because I can cut stuff up and move it around and put it back. So I don't do a lot of sketching before I start working. In fact, I hardly do any. I just like start start with my parameter and start with my elements and just start composing. It's like it's kind of like you're composing a musical score in a way. You know, you know, you have your your certain way that the notes are going to go together depending on what musical system you're using and um, the most ex- the most freeform thing I do, particularly when I'm doing collage work, is I, I frequently I'll go into the printmaking studio for a couple of days and I'll make what I call sort of my my feed stock. You know, I'll go in and I'll just do monoprinting and I'll just make all kinds of sheets of colors and textures and patterns. And the beautiful thing about the monoprint press is that you you put your ink and your paper in there and you have no idea what's going to come out the other end because everything changes in the whole process. And that's extremely exciting to me and that's that's sort of the the spontaneous aspect of it that I like. So I get all this sort of base, you know, working elements done and then by going back in through the cutting up of collaging, I can take parts of each one of those things and I can put them all back together in different combinations and then I then I can I can uh, join them all together into one piece. And so for me, it's sort of um, a little bit of spontaneity, a little bit of, of, of uh, you know, parameters, more spontaneity, more parameters. And so that's, it's kind of the story of my life, I guess, really, when you think right, about right. it, you know? I mean, I, 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 I appreciate patterns and I appreciate, you know, structure. But I also know that the real font of creativity comes out of the spontaneity of, things happening that you can't expect. And so I try to combine both of those things into my work, my fine artwork as well. 
Well, one of the things that occurs to me, and again, there's there's so many things that I can <laughs> respond to and question because mm-hmm. um, it's very interesting. A lot of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, and especially to kind of explore the the different ideas that we all have with with process and mm-hmm. and I, I I think especially the way that you balance out certain aspects that are experimental versus that that kind of system you know that mm-hmm. way of working mm-hmm. so that there's a a balance between taking risk and then also things that you know should hopefully work out if you if you kind of follow through on them long enough oh god nothing ever works out for me david i am constantly <laughs> every body of work i do and i hate myself for this i have to get a brand new technique brand new materials i it's terrible because i'm constantly starting over but that's what makes it exciting for me, you know? Like, like I never did encaustic, and I started this whole body of encaustic work, you know, and I worked in that for a while. And then I, I've never done, you know, I've never done working in acrylic paint on mylar before, but I, I knew those two materials separately, and I thought I want to combine them together. So I did a whole body of work based on that, along with plastic pencils, you know? And that was like a whole new learning experience, how to deal with those materials. and. And a lot of my wall installation pieces, I'm constantly working with materials that drive me insane. But, but that's what makes it exciting. I, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier: is that I, I don't want to repeat myself. I don't want to just say, "Oh, I'm doing this is what I do. I do oil on paper, and that's all I do. That's all I've ever done." I mean, that would I would be bored to death. So, I'm constantly looking for some new thing to use because it's kind of exciting that way, and it. It just puts more tools in your belt, and you know I find that I can go back when I'm exploring something down the line, and I can pick up something that I've used from before. You know, I mean, still to this day, as much as I hate airbrushing, I'm using a lot of materials and a lot of techniques and a lot of skills I developed from airbrushing in terms of cutting friskets that allows me to cut shapes. You know, in terms of of you know be, being willing to work with a rather protracted process, which is what airbrush is. You know, to, to discipline myself to to be able to do that. So, I mean, everything you do in the past always plays out in the future. Well, and it's, it's interesting again. I mean, sorry, I, um, there's so many different little things that I want to say, but I mean, also just the way that you kind of start to, to produce all of, all of the things that wind up being in your work, you know, so that mm-hmm. every, every component it's considered, but then mm-hmm. you're kind of leaving yourself to kind of compose away from that. So yes. there's kind of a, a nice relationship there where you don't mm-hmm. have to, try to produce something or mix, um, not necessarily all at once anyways. Right. I, I never walk up to a blank, a blank piece of paper and say, now I'm going to make a painting. I mean, right, right. I, I can't do that. I mean, that, that is probably where people get, you know, blocked is they think, Oh, I've got this blank piece of paper. Now I have to fill it with something important. And it's like, I never go there because that is way too intimidating. So I always, make components and then I'm, I'm continuing to assemble in components and it allows me to, you know, sort of pull it apart and put it back together again. Another, another one of my great art heroes is Judy Pfaff. Mm-hmm. And she's constantly exploring not only new materials, but the way that she goes about composing her things and, and uh, you know, ruminating on things and putting things in and taking things out and seeing how things work. I think that's that's where my spontaneity and my creativity happens, you know, is I, I assemble my materials and then I just see how they're all going to work together. And, and, uh, so that sort of takes the place of the sketching process, I guess, for me. Well, 
and it, it leads me to kind of wonder too. You know, one of the things that we haven't talked about. I mean, we've talked about you know roughly what the what um, you know different patterns or shapes or things might look like, mm-hmm. but nothing at all really about also the the formal elements, the colors, um, mm-hmm. and the. Sh- I'm guessing the shapes themselves are based off of whatever rules you're working with. But how do you yeah. determine things like color and what else you're going to use? Because it sounds to me, I guess it sounds like maybe then that's that time where you can just kind of experiment and just mm-hmm. come up with these different things to then respond to almost later but well what i you know i i think that you know people have sort of a certain set of colors that they really gravitate to and they gravitate to them over and over and over again and i know that's true about myself that i always go for like i gotta have cadmium red you know and i mm-hmm. gotta have that deep aqua and it's like you know give it a break i say to myself so that's why i like to go on the monoprint press and just put all kinds of inks on there. And even if I start with my favorite colors, they never end up that way because things get all mashed together and I overprint and I run things through multiple times. And so I end up with colors that I personally never would have chosen if I had been left my own devices. I end up with colors that are just completely unthought out. And I love that because that also, again, breaks my, my thinking habits. And it allows me then to create colors that I never would have done, you know, if I had just been thinking about it. And so then I take those elements, again, those are sort of my base elements, my basic tools, my basic materials, and I take them and say I have this beautiful sheet and it's some weird ochre color that I never would have picked, but there it is and it's gorgeous. So I take that as my starting point and I say, okay, now how can I work with this color and make it into something that really sings to me. You know, even, I mean, sometimes I take a deliberately ugly color that I just hate, you know, and I think, okay, that's your job today. You're going to work with that color and you're going to make it, you're going to make it into something that you think is, is, is strong and is good and is, is, um, has interest. And so that's part of the fun too, is, is to not do what your brain is always telling you to do. I mean, for me, that's, that's the investigation part, you know, it's not just investigating what's out there. You have to investigate what's inside yourself. You know, what are you holding on to? What are you clinging to? What are you afraid of ruining? And I always ask myself, you know, what are you afraid of ruining here? And then I generally, you know, if I'm having a brave day, I try to ruin it because that always takes me, it always takes me to a brand new place that's very exciting. Well, and one thing that we haven't talked about either is is time. So, so how mm-hmm. long do you typically work through um, one of these paper pieces that combine the the cut paper and the monoprint and oil paint i tend you know it's hard to say because i'll do some of it and then i'll walk away from it a while you know i'll do it until i hate it and then i know it's time to walk away and then i'll come back sometime later and i'll see oh okay this is why and i got to do this and i have to do this and then i'll walk away again so it's so I generally try to have several pieces going at once so I can walk away from any one of them at any time and just put it behind me. Mm-hmm. But also they're sort of bouncing off of each other at the same time. And then, but and that's just kind of the com- compositional process. And then once I get that sort of tightened up the way I want it, then usually I have to go through some sort of a technical material process to get everything in, stuck together. Like I have to, I have to glue it all together. I have to, you know, mount it on something and do whatever it is I have to do to create a, excuse me, a work of art. And so at that, that's sort of my last chance, you know, to change whatever I'm going to change or add. But I'm, I'm, I'm constantly 
manipulating and adding right to the bitter end until I finally say, okay, hands off, you're done. Right, right. Well, it's it's very interesting to think about that process, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that it seems, again, just the, with the way that you speak about it, I mean, I, is it something that the way that you think about your work and having the background that you had, that you spend a lot of time necessarily thinking about while you're working on it, or is it something that's that's kind of in the back of your mind, just, you know, the way that you have to follow these rules out and, and explore. You know what? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think really, I tend to try to be, um, I tend to do some upfront thinking about, you know, okay, this body of work, like for instance, one body of work, I was thinking about waves and how waves carry energy through matter. And I, that was just sort of my jazz riff for this whole body of work. And I knew, I mean, my certain parameters were that I was just going to work with circular elements. I wasn't even going to work really with ellipses per se. You know, I mean, I was going to just be like circles, you know, totally non-perspective. And then I had, I had all my, my basic monoprint sheet material. And that was, that was what I was working with. And then, so I do a lot of upfront thinking. And then, then it's really, I'm in that spontaneous reactive phase. And I, and I allow that to pretty much carry me through pretty much to the end of the work so i don't i don't try to interject too much more thinking you know rationally at after at that point um so because i have the luxury you know when you're working in sort of an abstract field you're really working more heavily with design than you are with depiction and so i mean and and i know this because when i work with my medical and scientific illustration i'm always working with depiction i mean there's nothing abstract about it you are working with material where you are depicting something some process some some material thing and so when you're working with that then you are constantly driven and constrained by making that depiction accurate and even if you're a fine artist if you have told yourself that you're depicting something that kind of drives you almost all the way through the whole work you know if you if you have something that you're depicting whereas if if you're sort of working more within a reaction of abstraction then you can see that your your working method is really completely different. One thing that I'm I'm curious too that we haven't talked about, and I'm sorry for all of my segues starting out the same way, but oh no, no worries. <laughs> well, I was curious about the 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 way that digital digital process might influence your work too, because I noticed that mm-hmm. there's a number of you know bodies of work that incorporate that earlier, and then also you know mm-hmm. your most recent bodies of work that um, literally you know are more digital, digital. right so right. how does that digital process influence the way that you you work oh i love it i love it you know it's it, my guilty pleasure but i'm not so guilty about it anymore because everybody's working digitally but you know through my years of being a medical illustrator i heavily into photoshop and all sorts of graphic computer programs and i started when i was starting to do like working with my fine art, I started to incorporate the digital stuff in pretty early on. I mean, one of the really fun things I found was um, a digital spirograph program. I mean, you remember spirographs, right? I mean, they're just fantastic. So I found this program, a computer program, to make spirographs on your computer. And I mean, I just had so much fun with it because it was like, you, you basically, really what you're doing is you're setting up an iterative mathematical equation to draw these geometric very complicated geometric form. So, I mean, it was just perfect for me. So I sort of started there, and I also started um, just bringing, like, bringing some of my materials, my monoprint sheets, I would photograph them and bring them into um, Photoshop and start working with them just to kind of get a beginning of, like, 
how am I going to shape these and how am I going to collage me? So I did a little sketching in that area. But then pretty soon um, I realized what I really wanted to do was to, I mean, I have all sorts of mechanical drafting tools to draw circles and, and ellipses and curves and, you know, all that sort of stuff to do it by hand. But um, I've evolved, and now I actually have this wonderful new printer that I can take my computer digital files, and now what I'm doing is I'm actually printing those lines and elements directly onto some of my sheets of, of mono-printed paper, and then I, I have beautiful cut lines and I have beautiful interior lines, and it's an extremely exciting thing, and I'm just, just starting to delve into that. So I've sort of, you know... I've come out of the cave, the Stone Age, with my use of digital elements, and um, they're they're becoming very important. But um, they're not everything. I'm not a straight digital artist. I mean, I did do a piece of public art that a lot of the imagery came from um, digital imagery that I either created or um, found, and uh, that was very very important. So there was. I think that one became most strongly maybe my digital work, but in, even in that, I, I incorporated found elements um, from the electrical uh, electrical grid because this was a piece for Seattle City Light, and so I was able to work with insulators and various other elements that they actually use in the field and um, providing electricity. So that was exciting too. So I could bring in sort of more of that tactile element you know, to get away from just strictly that sort of um, uncanny digital surface that that can happen. Well, it's interesting that you um, kind of come up with all these different ways of working that you can then kind of feel free to kind of intermix and mm-hmm. play around with them, too. You mm-hmm. know, it really is that illustration when I always tell my students, you know, you, you want to have the most tools in your box. And it seems yeah. like, again, you've got a, a huge depth to be able to draw from. Well, I think it's really important to never say, you know, to use everything and, to do, and don't see any limits on what it is you're allowed to use. I mean, you know, it, it used to be that people couldn't use any, you know, commercial art elements in their artwork. Well, thank God for Andy Warhol, you know. I mean, it was like, you know, you could break into that and now people are using really anything they want to. And I think that's a, that's very important because, again, I think that we're pulling away gradually. It's taken forever but we're, we've pulled away from that whole easel painting idea that you can use oils on canvas, and that's, that's all the legitimate there, are, there is. And I think people have been breaking away from that from the very beginning, but I think that you just have to continue on and use, use every element at your just every possible thing at your disposal. Well, and it's interesting that, you know, you bring that up because one of the things that I might throw you on the spot on and just kind of ask, too, is that do you think that your background and your experience in scientific illustration kind of, do you have the same concerns, do you think, that, that um, other artists do? Or are they, are, they, are they at all based off of scientific, um, you know, exploration in terms of, like, the overall... I don't know what you're, what you're trying to evoke out of it. I think the the most exciting thing for me is the natural world, and that is really the foundation of all of my art is is the natural world. And so I'm not interested in modern culture as a subject matter. I'm not interested in sorry to say people as my subject right, matter. Right. You know, I mean, I'm interested in 
what are the fundamental elements of our natural world? And sometimes that's extremely microscopic. And sometimes I get kind of drawn. I have a whole body of work that I got kind of drawn into, you know, the function of the body, um, you know, physiology in a way almost. Um, Again, having to do with systems that kind of organize our world and... um, well, and in that one in particular, I, I did kind of get into an emotional realm because for that body of work, it was kind of a reaction to some things that were going on in my own personal physical life. And it was fun to have, to sort of explore that, you know, to kind of drag yourself through, you know, your own personal experience and have to drag your viewer right along with you. Right, right. But uh, you know, I tried to make it as painless as possible. Well, it's super interesting to think about just because, again, that that extension of an interest in exploration of science and math and Mm -hmm. things that are about, I don't know, almost like uh, universal truths to me in a way that, you know, again, it's it's not necessarily like, you know, I'm I'm making this as a reaction to something. It's really Mm -hmm. seems like a, a, a exploration of that idea within your work. And it's, you know, it's very unique. Well, I think one of the most telling aspects about me is I, I really only read nonfiction. I'm not just not that interested in fiction. Mm-hmm. And I guess that kind of explains a lot about me because I think there's so much of the magical and the fantastical and the incredible in in the real world that um, it's it's endlessly fascinating to me. And it's, it's a bottomless source of, of uh, inspiration. I, I recently went to Paris and... Um, had a great opportunity there to go to Paris, and I just, you know, I saw so much art every day. I tell people my eyeballs were just bleeding. I mean, it was incredible to see all that art and to see this beautiful city and, and you know, the amount of history and backdrop to events that, that Paris is. But I came away from it realizing that really, compared to when I go on vacations where I'm scuba diving on a coral reef and I'm looking at the natural world, Paris kind of paled in comparison. (laughs) And I know people would be shocked to hear that, but, you know, I really treasure the realness of of nature. And uh, I think that's the thing that clearly I know, now I know, really is what um, gets me going. Right. Well, I I just have, I think, one big... uh weird question for you before you know we're, we're kind of nearing the end all your um, questions have been good david they but, haven't been weird <laughs> well this one i think could be because you know um i i am a, a interested in certainly uh pop culture and, and especially science fiction and, and things like that um i'm curious if if also this idea of exploring you know you mentioned early like patterns and and things like that exist throughout the world you know mm-hmm. and and are kind of you know, gen- generally just make up the universe in our experience. What do you uh, describe, ascribe to the idea, I don't know, something like simulation theory? Is that something that is something that's interesting um, in terms of the way that, I don't know, there might be a, a world that we just don't understand and we're slowly understanding it? And I could be totally misinterpreting some of the things that you were talking about earlier, but that that's that science fiction side of it. Right, so a, a simulated world. Well, you know, there is some talk of that i mean there's lots of theories about you know what is our universe really and one of them is is what we what you and i experience as reality is simply a simulation it's a hologram it's it's just a projection that it's not real but then again you know it's all in the eye of the beholder i mean as far as we're concerned it is real but i mean so 
I don't know if it's a semantical thing or if it's an actual physical thing that, that you know, I mean, could you say that our world is, is really just a simulation or a projection? Um, and so it is kind of fascinating. I mean, you're kind of going down a wormhole when you start thinking about that, when you start thinking about, you know, what is our reality actually made of? I mean, if you if you just think about the, the incredible qualities that uh, light brings us and our vision brings us, and they, they, they come together and to make a coherent world for us that we can actually move through. I mean, even if you just start exploring that little tiny part of our world, it's pretty incredible uh, that we even, we can even see coherently in that, that uh, light works in the way it does. I, I See, I, already, I took it right straight back to physics. I can't <laughs> even stay in the science fiction world that long. <laughs> well, no, and I, th- I think that's the thing that's so interesting about it, though. I mean, and, and again, I mean, I... I it's it's just a very interesting way of working and, and thinking about it, but I think especially just the way that all of that really seems to come through in terms of the way that you process it. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's something that, you know, I was trying to get at earlier, you know, a lot of young artists will kind of talk about the world and their work, and I think you literally explore that, so it's very exciting to, to think about. Well, is is there anything that you have coming up, any, any uh, shows that you um, perhaps want to, remind us about so that we know to look out for them? Um, I don't have a show per se. I just finished one big public art project and I'm still sort of healing from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, as I said, I'm kind of exploring a couple different new materials processes and techniques, but there's really nothing ready for um, prime time yet. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a finalist for another um, public art project that I don't really want to talk about much. I don't want to jinx it. I don't know when there'll be We'll be moving on to the, the the final decision stage. It's still a little bit up in the air, so that's pretty exciting for me too. So um, right now, I'm just you know I'm going to kind of hunker down in my studio for the summer and explore these new these. They're kind of two separate bodies of work. I don't know if one of them will take precedence or not, but one of them involves working with my new digital printer, and one of them works is involved with just painting by with my little old hand mm-hmm. on my monoprint sheets in oil. So that one's kind of a more of an organic response to the world. I'm kind of I'm kind of working with flower and organic plant shapes with that one. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of more macro and then the one that I foresee working with my large format digital printer would be kind of back to more of the um, the subatomic level kind of exploration because I I don't know if I'll ever be done with that really right <laughs> well, I mean that'll that'll be forever well it'll be it'd be interesting to have you back on to actually especially work through a, a you know like a specific body of work or investigation that you've been kind of. Oh, you know, kind of, fun, kind of putting forward to because I think again that yeah. I, that idea of of research and mm-hmm. you know exploring um, mm-hmm. all the all the little redundancies that can be in a very small um, field or area is, is very interesting because I think again a lot of times people might not see the you know the the limitations is a good thing but in some ways mm-hmm. it seems like having those rules and setting it up like that really gives you uh, a way to explore it that's interesting. Well, I mean, I think every artist really does come to his work, her her work, with even an unconscious set of parameters. I mean, even the materials you're working with, they set parameters. Um, if you have a subject area, that is setting a parameter. If you have a particular color palette or a particular technique, those all set parameters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so 
I guess I think maybe I, I've just sort of maybe made my parameters more conscious in a way or more, maybe I've made them more rational in a way, at least in that part of it. But um, I think every, every artist does do that. It, you know, they, there's always, there, there are always parameters. I mean, I think the, the, I think you have to be your own best taskmaster and your own best editor as an artist in order to, you know, come to the freest point, really. I think that, I mean, it's like they say about raising kids, you know, you, you got to give your kids, you know, guidelines. You got to give your kids parameters. Otherwise, they can't, they don't thrive. They actually fall apart. And I think that's true with artwork. You know, if you don't have parameters, it will not thrive and it will just fall apart. Right. Well, so. it'll be, like I said, it'll be interesting to, to, to uh, hear more in the future. So thanks again for uh, taking the time to speak with me about your work. Oh, David, it's been really fun. Thanks again to Kate for joining us, and please go check out her website, katesweeneyfineart.com. You can also check out work by me at davidlinaway.com or use the hyperlink on the Studio Break page on the left sidebar and find it that way. Again, we remind you that we have a variety of podcasts available on Studio Break. You can find all the slideshows, all of the links to their websites, and all of that information. So please go ahead and check them out. You can go month by month through the archive feature and see all the podcasts that you missed out on. There's about 80 of them. So please check it out. And of course, if you like it, share it with your friends. Let them know about it. It's especially great to listen to if you got a commute or if you're in the studio and you want to listen to someone talk about their studio practice. Once again, you can find us on iTunes, search for Studio Break under podcasts, or use that link on the blog post to find it. Again, we do have a Facebook page that you can like, Studio Break, and again, we provide updates from some of the past guests that we have, their show announcements, as well as previews, some of the guests that are coming up. So please go ahead and check that out. And lastly, of course, you can follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break, so please go ahead and do that. And without further ado, that's our episode for this week. We'll talk to you real soon.